0: Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa, and Chantelle Hebert is in Montreal. And Chantelle, as I was telling listeners in the last couple of days, we've had a lot of mail saying, Where is she? Uh, for those who didn't know, and get her to tell us about Iceland when she comes back, so obviously we got lots to talk about on this program in terms of politics, but uh, you better give us the briefing first of all on uh, on what that holiday was like.
1: I highly recommend uh, Iceland if you need to clear your mind and your lungs at the same time. It's a beautiful place whenever I'm around, so I can keep people posted for when I go back, there is sunshine. Apparently there weather can happen, but uh it, it was my fourth visit. I was up on the uh, highlands in the east side. uh I had planned to do some cross country skiing. I'm not good at it uh and climate change made it so that the snow disappeared. there was all ice. So I went out uh after day one and sat in a cabin in the middle of nowhere by myself. Uh, in the middle of mountains and a beautiful scenery, should I add that there was a hot tub, my meaning a hole in the ground with hot water to sit in. (laughs) Um, I have internet. And I have to say that from that great distance, uh, the China interference story uh, was interesting to follow, but it, 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 didn't read like uh, the, the, the beginning of World War Three. put it this way. <laughs> so if you ever have, you know, time to go somewhere else, there are direct flights. It's not very far. Iceland, you jump over Newfoundland and go in land and you're in the Reykjavik. <laughs> great place to be. And um, forgive me for possibly not being as engaged in the <laughs> uh, do or die debate. Uh, over uh, China interference in elections. It doesn't help that I did spend quite a bit of time in my life in Asia. Uh, So I am under no delusion that uh, Canada would be better treated by China uh, were our government to be an NDP or conservative. Uh, That's basically, at this point, the China approach to uh, democracies that we are witnessing in action in this country.
0: What do you think, Bruce? Do you think she got a, you know, a gift from the Icelandic Tourism Board for that uh, wonderful endorsation of uh,
1: I of hope Iceland. so. Free tickets, <laughs> please. If they're, on
2: their, if they're on their game, they're going to ask if they can run that little clip of that. Um, <laughs> and so they should. It's great promotion. And, you know, what she was describing made me feel like, uh, like how I feel in Scotland a lot, like probably how you feel. So good for you at, that you did that. And thanks for sharing it. Okay, I want to go now.
0: Let's uh, let's get to business. Obviously, with the hottest story of the day, and I'm I'm anxious to see how you both react to this. The announcement from Buckingham Palace by King Charles III that King or that Prince Edward is now going to be called the Duke of Edinburgh, and I can tell. From the shocked look on both of your faces, <laughs> that this this was not what you were expecting to start off with, I I got a kick out of it. I got to say, when I read that this morning, no, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, we are going to talk about the the. I I don't even know what to call it. You know, scandals have like nicknames, and they usually end it with "gate." And I don't know what I don't know what this one is, but there's certainly been enough play on it in the last week, especially the last couple of weeks, ever since the Globe first uh, broke the story and the global television has followed up with a number of exclusives of its own. Nobody's looked good on it. Nobody. The Prime Minister hasn't looked good. He looks like he's bobbling the Uh, the football, so to speak, as as he's been trying to navigate through these waters. The leader of the opposition has made some outrageous statements, at least uh, uh, many people think they were outrageous, and I think his own office thought so too, because he he seemed to uh, change course fairly quickly after the initial uh, hits he took on it. Um, And they shouldn't be forgotten. I don't think just because you change course is suddenly it doesn't matter what you said the day before. I think it does matter. Anyway, aside from all that, what is the crux of this story? What is the issue? If you can boil it down to, you know, to one thing, what is the issue here, Bruce?
2: Well, um, I'm not going to accept the premise of your question that there's only one thing, but I will say I think there are two <laughs> things, and um, <laughs> I think that the two things are: is there a a, a problem? Uh, that we need to do more about with respect to interference in our election campaigns, whether by malign domestic sources, by foreign sources, not just China. And I think the evidence is we do. And I think the evidence also is that um, the idea that we can do that all without it being uh, without the investigation or the discussion of it being in, in more in, in greater public display, i think that's wrong i think we need to have more transparency about what's going on we need more regular reporting from whatever body is going to do this kind of work on our behalf and i think that the government made a miscalculation originally in the way that they designed this process Um, and they made a miscalculation more recently in the way that they uh, defended their position in both cases, the same kind of problem, which is the notion that you can tell people that they should be concerned about this, but you can't tell them very much about what's happening. And that only leads to uh, a level of mistrust and partisanship, which is unhelpful. The second issue, which I think is actually the it's not the more serious issue, but it's the more politically charged issue, is whether or not the government has lost its ability to manage uh, issues that are, uh, at an earlier time, perhaps they would have managed more adeptly. This has been more shocking, I think, as an experience for liberal supporters, including elected people, uh, than a lot of other things uh, that have uh, been issues that the government had to manage in part because it was like a slow rolling train wreck that happened over several days. And at any point in those several days, reasonable, thoughtful people with agility and, and political skills could have said, hold on now, we've got to stop doing this. We've got to put down the shovel, to use the other metaphor, stop digging the hole and get on a right path. The fact that that didn't happen, you know, I'll kind of stop here, is, is uh, well, the, the nicest word, the most gentle word is, is disconcerting. Uh, To liberal supporters, I think. Um, And it it begs the question of whether or not this is the new standard of political management that they can expect. And if it is, uh, it makes them worried, I think, going into an election, because it's not been a it's not been a great week at all for the government. Chantal?
1: If if that's the new standard, uh, then I guess they should start looking at those seats across the aisle and try to figure out where they'd like to be sitting in opposition, because uh, I was... I have to say on mismanagement, and I will answer your question with just one. Uh, but before that, I was I was taken aback uh, when the prime minister announced on Monday uh, this idea of a special independent expert um, to look into things, uh, because it was a no-brainer solution that was obvious if you rolled back the tape to our show the last Friday I was on. And I'm not a great political strategist, but it was a no-brainer. If you were going to do that 10 days later and playing catch-up, the only way to get in front of that parade would have been to come up with a name at the same time, not to give the opposition parties a full week to doubt who that person would be and to give people who might agree to do this task for the government time to think of the many reasons why they might want to say no. So it's it's. I understand that the House is not sitting next week, and I understand that the Liberals feel that they can use the break to kind of complete their catch-up. But I'll come back to what I think is the, the main issue here. I believe our security services and Elections Canada are doing as much due diligence as they can and should. And I believe that the RCMP is conducting investigations in the way that uh, it should. And I don't think that any inquiry would want to second guess, absent a number of factors, the way that this file is being handled by the people who are paid to look into issues like that. So by now, to me, it boils down to an issue of political accountability. Uh, And the political accountability that is being questioned is that of the prime minister. After a week of evasions in the House of Commons, filibustering to keep his chief of staff outside of a committee room, you kind of wonder whether uh, the prime minister and his staff are trying to feed the narrative that they have something that they desperately want to hide. I'm not saying that's the case. How in the world would I know? But that is what it looks like. And it isn't the opposition that has made it look like that. It's the government itself. With, with the, the, the incapacity uh, of the prime minister to answer fairly basic questions about what he knew when and how and what he did about it. All those questions, and I've come to that school, uh, could be answered in the context of a parliamentary committee by the prime minister himself. So, if Justin Trudeau wants to put this behind him without having a public inquiry, and I still have doubts as to the merits of the exercise of a public inquiry, let him go sit in a parliamentary committee and answer and answer the questions, not not provide evasions. Uh, I, and if the prime minister believes, as he said in the house, that anything he would do. Would still be doubted by many Canadians. Maybe it's time he reconsiders whether he wants to be the prime minister.
2: Whoa. Okay, Bruce. The, um, you know, I wanted to pick up on uh, on Chantal's point about how much effort is being put into um, avoiding testimony by the prime minister's chief of the staff, who we've seen testify. Uh, in public before and who's extremely adept at it, Um, usually comes very, very well prepared and um, uh, is a clear speaker. And uh, so, you know, I don't know why they're putting that effort into that, but I also think that by allowing that to be such a point of conversation for the opposition and allowing it to occupy two or three days, uh, in the end, this issue, like many others, will go the way the others do to some degree. There'll be a <clears throat> a turning of the news cycle and and a lot of people who, who, who even people who follow politics somewhat will forget about this to some degree. But I think the the question of the uh, the fitness, the physical fitness, the political fitness of the government apparatus is really the thing that's uh, that's standing out to me. And related to that, Chantal's point about the prime minister's evasive answers uh, strikes me as is one of those things where, yes, there are some times where you get asked questions and the best available political strategy is to dodge the question. I get that. I'm not naive about it. That does happen sometimes and you can get away with it sometimes. But there are other situations. This is one where you can't do that where if you can't answer the question because of reasons of national security or whatever, at least you have to explain why you can't answer the question instead of uh, talking about something else, which is what the prime minister has been doing um, for the last 24, 48 hours when he gets asked certain questions about this. And the presumption in doing that is that people won't stop and comment and notice that. And that's not right. People do in this situation. They want to know more and they're wondering why he isn't answering questions. And it's feeding this alternative narrative, which I don't believe is true, uh, which is that maybe he does have something to hide. And I, you know, I read Andrew Coyne's uh, piece this morning. I think he, I think it was published this morning, might've been yesterday's, but he, he, in the piece, he talks about the fact that, um, if you don't have anything to hide, answering questions in this fashion does not give people the opportunity to believe that. It feeds the alternative narrative. And so I don't understand why there can't be an answer, which is, I can't answer this question for this reason, rather than the latest one, which is, um, no matter what I say, people won't believe me, which you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's a pretty hard statement to land successfully from a political strategy standpoint if right. you're the prime minister. And uh, I don't know what um, all of his MPs and ministers are supposed to do with that. Are they supposed to echo that? Whatever we say, nobody will believe us. So, so they need to get to someplace better. And, and, and they and the and need minister. to get
0: there quickly because this is yeah. just a drip, drip, drip. And, you know, Chantel's right. You know, a parliamentary committee would do it. So would a a real interview that deals just with those questions. Yeah. Asking them one after another. And, you know, he's done bad interviews over the years. He's done good interviews over the years. Um, So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the issue is, why, why, why they're backing away from it. I'll get to it in, I'll get to the chief of staff question in a moment, but I just want to ask something else because another thing that's kind of popped up over the last couple of days, you've seen it from a number of people. I saw Ward Elcock, the former CSIS director on, uh, on with Hannah Thibodeau the other day. And he was basically saying, there's nothing really new here. We've known about this for years. And it's been in the public... Um, you know, with domain on, on that as well. And, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago and, and, and it's true. It has been sort of out there on different levels. You know, the, the story has, has changed a little bit over the years, but the basic fact that China was interfering, um, it was not new here or elsewhere. Um, so it does kind of raise the question. And I ask this, I'm not sure I believe it, but I ask it because it's being asked by more and more people these days Um has this story been totally overblown? In the search for for a story, has this one been overblown, Chantal?
1: Well, I, I'm I'm going to go with anecdotal evidence that there was some of that uh, when I came back from that week off, uh,
0: sitting in the hot and tub, and went
1: back <laughs> and sitting in a hot tub reading. A, Twitter and thinking, what are they doing out there where I come from? And do I want to go back? (laughs) Um, When I went back to Radio Canada, someone uh, who, you know, finds interviewees for shows said last week was really, really hard. There was nothing except China because it was the school break in, in, in Quebec. And so there was no action and absent some competing story. And parliament wasn't sitting. So absent some competing story, of course, this story got a lot more oxygen than it might have if it had happened on the week at the end of March when the President President Biden is visiting and on the week uh, when the federal budget is presented. But there, there was absolutely no competing narrative at the same time. The government broke the rule that said, don't feed the, a story if you want it to go away by feeding it every single day with no answers. And then on Monday, feeding it again by giving itself, because that seems to have been the point, giving itself an answer that was a non-answer, as in wait till we appoint Superman who will tell us what we need to do and what the way forward is. Um, So overblown, probably, uh, but it became bigger and bigger with every passing day because of mishandling by the government.
2: Bruce? Uh, I agree with much of that. I'm a little bit different on one point. So I I did watch that Ward Elcock interview, who's a former CSIS director, and I was glad that he gave it and was talking on the record and was adding some expert voice to the conversation. Uh, I think that his interview was characterized as though he was saying, there's nothing to be concerned about. And I don't think that's exactly what he was saying. And if it was, I don't agree with him. I think that there is something to be concerned about with respect to the, the trust levels that people have seen shaken in how our elections work. And um, my friend David Coletto put out a poll this morning. And in the poll, you could look at the numbers and say, well, most people didn't think that our election was compromised. And I look at it and say, well, actually, millions of people aren't sure." And that's a that's an important issue. And I think it's an important issue that we've seen play out in the United States. The creation of the division and the mistrust of how our systems work is a much bigger problem than it has been at any time in my lifetime. So I think it's a big deal. Now, I stopped probably 20 years ago, measuring whether a thing was a big deal because the public was preoccupied with it, because I watched how disengaged over time people became and how few issues actually became so salient for them. I also don't think it matters whether it's affecting voting intention right now. It's the least important part of it, I suppose, but it tends to be the thing that gets the most attention is, did it move the numbers? Is the horse race different? Because... Uh, Trudeau mismanaged the questions or because the the opposition prosecution of this issue was particularly effective. I don't care. I don't think it matters. We're not having an election tomorrow. And the truth is that the nature of this issue is one where people can be concerned on the right or on the left or on the middle. And they don't necessarily know if the conservatives would have a better approach. They're just kind of wondering what to make of it if they're paying some attention at all. Um, But I do think that the, what may be um, overblown outside the bubble is the question of the political management of this. But inside the bubble it's not overblown because it is actually really important how these parties in the in the context of a minority government with an election at who knows what time, for the incumbent party, which had you know pretty significant political management skills uh, at different times on display in the past. To look so disorganized is maybe the best way to put it, uh, and to make so many kind of self-inflicted errors, um, I, I think it's a it's a big conversation inside the bubble for legitimate reasons. Okay. Um...
1: I also uh, I I just want to say a word because uh, Bruce mentioned that the abacus poll, and I, I'm I am not here taking shots at the poll itself, but uh, at the fact that. You know, you kind of pick and choose when you see a poll, whatever suits your 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 narrative thread. Uh, and one of the things to pick in there is that uh, one in four conservatives uh, seems to believe that the outcome of the election would have been different. Uh, let me just provide some context here: a sizable number of conservative voters also believed Donald Trump uh, was robbed from an election victory so and and an even larger number believe that climate change is not a significant issue so to say we are going to be measuring the damage to the faith in our democracy by that number would be a gross misrepresentation of reality if you don't put it in the context of the other beliefs that probably are shared by the same group uh, if you believe donald trump 's election was stolen and you are uh, you are likely to believe that yours was stolen too, that does not make it true but and that doesn 't mean that anything the government could do on that score. I will agree with Justin Trudeau would convince those people otherwise um, well, so well, I, I just wanted true, to but add but this but... because I know those numbers are going to start percolating in the in the commentary uh and taken alone. They are totally uh, meaningless, and they end up being part of manipulating reality.
0: Okay, we should also we should also we should also keep in mind that all of the political leaders in Canada, including Pierre Polyev, have said the outcome of the election was not impacted by this. Uh, so what those people believe or don't believe, um, the, runs up against that basic hard fact. It, it, we got to move is not on, a but hard Bruce, fact, though.
2: It, it isn't a hard fact. It, it wasn't impacted. Isn't the same test as did the, did a different party? Was a different party declared the winner, than should have been. And this is this it's kind of soft language, which I'm hearing leaders use, which I'm going, you actually don't know how many people were whose, whose thoughts and mental processes and voting choices ultimately were impacted. and And so, yes, in aggregate, you can say it probably didn't change the outcome, but you can't say for sure it didn't change any outcomes, it didn't change any votes. That's just not a plausible, it's not plausible as a fact. On uh, Chantal's point, if, if if I can, just for a minute,
0: yeah, I don't know. Go ahead, but, uh, but but let me just say, the hard fact I was talking about was that Polyev said that in his opinion it yes. wasn't a f- impact. That yes. was the hard and, fact,
1: and, and whether says whether it changed the, all I'm saying. But whether it changed the vote or not in a given writing, I think there is a fairly solid consensus that it did not change the total outcome of the election, if you could do that in just 12 writings, because that is what we're talking about, then the the anti-abortion movement, which has representation in a lot more writings, would have a government that has for years forbidden abortion except under dire circumstances. There is political reality here. It's not just speculation about whose mind was changed. It is a, a strategy that was applied to the writings that have a large Chinese community, that's at best a dozen ratings.
2: Yeah, I I don't I, I'm not making the case that the election was broken or stolen. I'm making the case, I guess, that if we if we lean on or lean into this idea that it wasn't, um, does it maybe minimize the fact that um, this phenomenon is growing and we need to be more vigilant about it as opposed to Let's put it away because nothing bad in the end really, you know, amounted to a grave uh, transgression. I think the problem with the process that had been in place is that it would only be able to tell you if an election was broken after it was broken. And uh, that seems like a pretty bad uh, way to deal with something like this. You want to be able to apprehend something in advance of it becoming a big problem. But I just wanted to add one other thing on the polls, which is Chantel's right that there's a significant number, about 20% of conservative voters who believe Donald Trump uh, had his election stolen and also that Mm. that humans weren't ever on the moon and, and that sort of thing. The number in the poll of conservative voters who think that this election might have been compromised against their interests is an increment higher than that. It's not double. But it's not the same number. And so all I'm doing is sort of saying, I think that the growth of this phenomena, we have to be a little bit careful about. And the last point is that the same number of liberal voters believe there should be a public inquiry as conservative voters who believe that. Now, that's not because people love public inquiries. They do understand that they don't always lead to perfect answers. They can cost money. They can take too long. But it does remind me that this isn't for many people a particularly partisan issue right now. It's just a question about the state of the world and, and what we need to know about how our democracy is impacted. All right. I got I got to take and, a and break. And but, take
1: but if people want answers, they would not want a public inquiry because that answer might come after the election.
2: OK, fair enough.
0: Yeah. Everybody's finished their last points. Or is there the four for Chantel, do three sell for? Sell something then, Pete. If that's yeah. what you got, <laughs> I mean, do what you need to do. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Bridge, the Friday edition. Good talk with Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson. You're listening on SiriusXM channel one six seven. Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel. Okay, I um, I wanted to talk about this chief of staff issue because I think it's important and and you know we've all been around long enough to know these you know chiefs of staff change every once in a while in, in some offices. Um, Katie Telford is the chief of staff for Justin Trudeau, and she's been in a senior position for Justin Trudeau since he was elected in 2015. Um, and before that, I guess she was in the OLO, the uh, office of the leader of the opposition before that too. Um, and she has her fans, she has her detractors, that's normal, it comes with the job, comes with the territory. Uh, but when you go track back through history, not many prime ministers or presidents for that matter, you just saw a change in the, in Biden's office, um, there's a turnover on, in that role. And sometimes it comes along because of a crisis. Other times it comes along just because they want a kind of fresh, uh, tone inside, in, inside the office, um, that hasn't happened here at all in the uh, seven or eight years that Trudeau's been in office with Katie Telford. I mean, there was the Jerry Butts uh, uh, time as well, and and he ended up leaving. Um, but, you know, we saw with Mulroney, we saw with Pierre Trudeau, we saw with, uh, I think, Jean Chrétien, we saw numbers of chiefs of staff coming in and out, and the same with uh, Harper. Is there... Well, I, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think of this thing? Is it time for a change in that office? I mean, we, call, we, we talk in tones of, well, you know, they really had management problems, uh, handling issues, and, you know, at some point this tracks to the chief of staff, right? Whether, whether it's her or his fault or not, that's who takes the blame. Um, is there an issue in the senior staff around the prime minister of Canada? Who wants to take a run at that first?
1: I think so. But I also think it's too late to uh, change uh, chief of staff uh, in, in the cycle. Why do I say that? Well, why do I think there is a problem? Because we have, since uh, we came back from the new Year's, spent an incredible amount of time talking about mismanaged uh, issues that stemmed from the PMO. It actually dates back. I mean, the, the, the fiasco around the gun control legislation, the needless fiasco was one of those, but also the way that the appointment of a special advisor on Islamophobia was handled uh, with what appeared like an absence of due diligence. And if you're not prepared for a storm, then you're not going to do well in a storm uh, is another case in point. I am forever reminded over the past few days that this is a government that has had um, both the, the challenge but also the opportunity of focusing its energy on one big file over its previous two terms. In the first term, Donald Trump managing the relationship and the renegotiation of NAFTA, which ended up being a litmus test of its competence, as opposed to uh, what they did or didn't do on electoral reform, go down the list. And then in the second term, the pandemic, which overshadowed anything else on the good or bad side. Uh, At this point, they don't have that kind of issue to focus on and say, well, uh, I know that they devote a lot of energy to the Ukraine file, but on a domestic front, it, this isn't uh, top of mind for Canadians. And we'll see what the budget brings. But they, they, they are better at the big stuff, the healthcare accord, for instance, uh, than they are at uh, actually governing. Why I think it's too late? Well, for one, it's clear that Justin Trudeau's uh, comfort zone includes Katie Telford. uh, And I'm not sure you can wean him from this so late uh, in his tenure. But I also believe the federal government, this government's capacity and this prime minister to attract top talent is not what it used to be. And that's normal because anyone who has a great career going, is going to pause and think, do I really want to go to this place where it will take me a while to figure out where the washrooms are uh, and the closets and what's in them for what may be six months, eight months, a year. Uh, And the history of the longstanding chief of staffs being uh, uh, replaced towards the end uh, of the cycle usually have been a symptom of end of cycle rather than a way to give a second wind to the government. So if Justin Trudeau is going to make those changes, and he may have to, I'm not excluding that someone is going to have to walk the plank over this China story. Uh, you can only surmise uh, from all this filibustering to keep uh, Katie Telford out of a committee that uh, she either cannot give answers that would not embarrass her boss, or answers that would not embarrass her out of a job. It's speculation, but that speculation is fed by by, by this uh, desperate attempt to keep her uh, from testifying. So yes, there probably should have been a change probably uh, at the after the last election. It didn't happen, and I don't think that it's. Uh, it's. It would be easy to make such a transition this late uh, in the game.
0: You know, I, I've found one term you used there, talking about Justin Trudeau revealing Chantal, late in his tenure. Were you well? It is late
1: uh, by the by historical standards. It is late in his tenure. No incumbent has ever, in recent history, won a fourth consecutive term. Didn't happen.
2: Right. Perhaps he thinks it's the first half. He's just hitting that halfway mark. <laughs> yeah, but
1: what if it's... Like yeah, I he suspect just that's not halfway. the case. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, well, we'll
0: remember that. I'm going to write that on the blackboard here and uh, keep that one in mind. Late in his tenure. Uh,
1: but I'm not the one right. who predicted he would be gone by the end of 2022. Ah, I yes. knew That would come back. Know, well, you open, open that, that door, I'm going but to enter it.
0: I thought we said. You got a good memory. He should, yeah. you know, if he wants to protect <laughs> his legacy, he should go before that. Uh, uh, well, uh, that's what not what you guys <laughs> said. Sorry.
1: <laughs> okay. Sorry.
0: Bruce. Uh, that's right. On the on this. Oh,
2: chief look, of I savage. think Kate Telford is. Uh, is an extraordinarily uh, smart and talented person. I think that um, she's done uh, quite a good job uh, with the, especially in the context, and tell me this point, I think it's a really important one, is that every chief of staff is only as good as the understanding of what it is that their boss wants. And she has been, for him, given the way that he likes to operate, I think exactly what he's been looking for. Um, and that's no small feat. Um, and, uh, and so I think that uh, criticisms naturally gravitate towards somebody in that job over a period of time. It's just uh, that is like sand running out of a, um, an hourglass. It's very predictable how that goes. And it, sometimes it's fair and sometimes it's not fair. And, and at the end of the day, if you're in those jobs, you kind of understand that that comes with the territory and you develop a bit of a thick skin. Wherever she has had to, or had the opportunity, uh, to uh, represent herself and represent the government publicly, I think she's done quite a, you know, an effective job of it. On uh, the Wee scandal in particular, I think is the one that comes to mind for me. So, um, but all of that having been said, I, I'm. Uh, fan of Formula One racing. I don't know if you are, but I was before even the Netflix series. And one of the things, I'm going to use a metaphor, that I always thought was interesting about watching that sport is that the faster that cars go, the more quickly their tires degrade. And the smartest strategists in that uh, racing formula sometimes are the ones who figure out not to lose the grip on their tires by overcharging too much uh, through the course of the race. And Chantal made allusion to the Trump problem and the pandemic as being huge energy sucks for the government, which I think absolutely is true. In addition to that, this is a government that came to office and declared that it had some of the most enormous ambitions that you could ever have and mandate letters that run pages long of details that ministers are expected to execute on. So Katie Telford, in my view, needs to be measured a little bit in the context of what kind of, not just what kind of person she was serving and whether she did what he wanted her to do. Um, I don't mean to put that in the past tense, whether she is doing uh, what he wants her to do, but also in the context of this is a government that, you know, it's back to the car metaphor. It's been running hard and fast to deal with problems unexpected like the pandemic and Trump and also to execute on a very deep and complicated, in many cases, agenda, plus to manage a series of three opposition leaders and uh, the combustible nature of conservative populism these days. It's been a lot. Uh, I also, final point for me, is I agree with Chantal that uh, if he was or if they were going to agree to make a change, uh, maybe the time for that was a little bit earlier because I, I do think these are these are not insignificant Changes in terms of the impact on the way things work—they're hard to manage. Okay.
0: Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on that is related to this story uh, is the performance of Pierre Polyev. We've talked about this a couple of times this week. Chantel's first uh, run at it on the on on this program. Uh, you know, I mentioned last week that after all the talk about and uh, the complaints about not doing uh, media. Uh, Situation scrums, news conferences, that he was starting to do them, but he didn't look very good on them. And that started last week, and then it followed up again this week. Uh, And perhaps that was the whole reason why he wasn't doing them in the first place, because he gets carried away with the rhetoric, sometimes to his real um, disadvantage in saying things that uh, are, are later condemned by a lot of different people. Uh, and he gave ammunition to the Liberals, uh, at least for a while this week, uh, by some of those things he said. So are we seeing, are we getting closer now? to I mean, the question has always been, who, who's the real Pierre Polyev? Are we now starting to see that as a result of the fact that he's, he's you know, he's going before the media more often? Chantal?
1: Well, now we know why his team was willing to put money on the table to avoid the final debate in the leadership campaign. This is a a political leader, and I don't think I've covered an official opposition leader, and I did cover uh, Stockwell Day, Stephen Harper, Preston Manning, Jean Bouchard, to name some fairly strong characters. I've never covered one that was as prickly and as bad, at playing defense or accounting for himself and for his own party uh every news conference i've been fascinated by by his news conferences because they in a, a number of instances over the past few weeks they have tended to happen on the same day as a justin trudeau news conference and i never felt that justin trudeau was particularly effective in a news conference but Compared to Pierre Poilier, the prime minister is an ace at the news conference in the sense that uh, he does not make you come away thinking less of him than when you started watching. And that is part of the trick that you do a news conference to explain your point and to account for yourself, not just to accuse others. Uh, Mr. Poilier seems to only know one thing, and it is to point fingers at others. Now, that to me begs a much larger question, and I know I'm not the only one who has been watching, and it's not liberals, conservatives. How does someone in that kind of register of and and that finger pointing goes to anyone who is asking a question that would question or would ask the leader of the conservative party to account for his own party or his own policies? How does someone like that get through a 40-day election campaign? It is not true that in a 40-day campaign, you are forever going to be given the opportunity to scorn at your opponents without having to speak for your own policies and getting some pushback to see if your tires have some air in them. The other question I asked myself watching this is, would the Conservative Party consider trying to buy itself out of leaders' debates. Because in a leaders' debate, Mr. Poiliev is not going to be in question period in the role of lead accuser of the government. He will be taking a lot of fire. And at this point, I see, uh, on his part, very little talent to deflect those shots or to turn them to his advantage. What I watched this week, the uh, how do you... um, or are you going to do anything about the three MPs who went and had lunch with an extreme right politician? And the answer being, no, uh, I've answered the question. And why don't you ask Justin Trudeau how many times he dressed up or black faced himself over the years? Well, we've had two elections to cast judgment on the prime minister on this. It's not an answer. Uh, So, Interesting, probably a good idea to do those news conferences. Why? Because uh, there is a chance that uh, uh, Mr. Poiliev will fix his own mistakes. But if he's auditioning for the role of leader of the opposition, as he is, he will get that role.
0: You know, you say that you can't get away with that over 40 days of an election campaign. You may be right. But we all remember what happened in 2016 in the U.S. Trump got away with it for a lot longer than 40 days and the media went into a a a lot of self-criticism after that campaign saying you know we should have we should have pursued this guy more we didn't ask the right questions we let him get away with you know outrageous statements here there and wherever Um, so we have the proof that it can happen and for those who say polyevs playing by the trump playbook Maybe he thinks he can get away with it again. So, in the, at the end of the day, the onus is going to be as much on the uh, on the reporters who are covering the story as it is on 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 the leader who will or will not answer questions. So I think Except
1: that leaders' debates, right? You're not. Uh, you don't have the. You can't blame the reporters or play the reporters That's when true. you're doing a leaders' debate for one for two. If back. we're gonna say. It happened in the U.S., so it can happen here. Well, it's also happening in the U.S. that women are being stopped from getting abortions. I'm not sure a single politician in office would survive that in Canada. So, uh, yes, it did happen, possibly because it happened. It it left marks on uh, people's psyche. But I can safely tell you that, uh, at least on the French side of this, there is no way that Pierre Poilievre can score with that style. It's just too um I'm not sure what the word would be, but uh, it's too toxic for for you know, for the 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 kind of uh, politics that will be tolerated here. and and we have serious hard debates in this province, but on on facts, not on tell, saying you're from Radio Canada, and that disqualifies you from asking a leader a question that's not gonna be happening very often.
0: All right, uh, Bruce wants in on this, and he will get in on this. But we got to take our final break. Here it is, right now. And we're back for the final word uh, on our uh, good talk panel with Chantel and Bruce for this Friday. Um, thank you for joining us, as always. Uh, all right, Bruce. You wanted in on this uh, issue of uh, politics? Yeah.
2: <clears throat> yeah, I think that uh, prickly pierre is uh, is not a great look. It's not a great um, posture for him if he wants to win an election. I think that it does work in some scenarios to remind the angriest part of his base that he's as angry as they are. And they need that constant reminder um, because their eyes wander over towards the People's Party. I get that math, and I don't really admire him for playing to it, but I understand the, the logic of staying in touch with the with the sentiments of the people who are the most rabidly anti-Trudeau, anti-liberal, anti-gatekeeper, anti-norms, what have you. Um, but I think that uh, Chantal's point for me is really important when she talks about what do people look for in a leader who they want to be prime minister. And yes, sometimes I guess it's just, they're so mad with the incumbents or they're so tired that they, they look at the change on offer and maybe they don't like it. They kind of half close their eyes and they go with it. That does happen sometimes. It doesn't happen that often though. And the, um, and the thing that um, sometimes is missing from an opposition politician's portrayal of who they are and what they represent is optimism is a sense of hope a sense of we can make things better not just that things are terrible right now and i don't you know i think that Pierre polyev has fashioned a way to say that to some people um who's the standard that they're setting for was it credible is pretty low because they're unhappy with Trudeau and they're conservative supporters. And they like his talk about gatekeeping and more freedom and that sort of thing, but get closer to an election and he's pitching to a bigger audience and their, their expectation of a real natural sense of optimism, a real natural sense of we can come together, which is not a thing that he generally does very well. I don't think he likes to do that. I don't think it's his natural kind of, Temperament. I, I think if he doesn't connect with people on that level, he is um, he's going to struggle. Uh, he's going to find that he's hit some sort of a top line ceiling, and that his negatives are going to continue to grow. Um, last thing I'll say is I think he believes that he's so fluent as a political communicator that none of this matters. That the rules that bind uh, other politicians to the ground, he can avoid. Uh, having to live by those rules. He's so uh, able to fashion a phrase, and you can almost see the way that he approaches a press conference, even in his prickly Pierre mode, is that he kind of likes uh, the character that he's portraying. He feels like if he can uh, intimidate or bully or castigate a reporter, it feels good to him. And I think he's grown up in a political context, and really that's all he's done uh, for his adult life, in which that was rewarded. That was considered to be uh, what you should be trying to do. Uh, but I don't, I, I think that he, the, the risk for him and his party is that it won't wear well uh, when more people start paying attention and the choice that's about to be made has more significant consequences.
0: I, I find it interesting uh, that you make that argument that he's like he's comfortable in his skin when you watch him. Doing that because I, I must say, this week for the first time, this week and last week, I was getting at times the opposite feeling that he's scrambling, that he that he doesn't, he's not comfortable with the direction he's having to go in to bat those questions off. The you know Chantel's point about the, you know, the bringing up of the the blackface thing from you know decades ago, as his response to the three MPs, um, he, he looked desperate on that. Like, he he didn't look like a guy who was comfortable with the direction he was having to go to try and get away from the question. So, I I don't know. You, you may be right. I mean, listen, we've all said, and we've said it for years, that he is a skilled guy on the communications level. It's just in this last little while, he hasn't looked so skilled
2: I feel like I, well, uh, he also, he also has it, to they, they, go, ahead. You, go ahead. One of you go, Bruce. The lashing out, I, I think, lashing out is it you know, it's a good example because that's what he did. He, he and so you could look at it and say, Well, it, it looked more philately than uh, you know, structured, and that's true. But the lashing out has been his modus operandi as a politician for all of his political life. And so when I say I think he's comfortable with that character, I don't mean it to don't mean to suggest that it looks comfortable to everybody else. It's his go to when he's in a situation that he has to manage, because it's what you know, he's he's gone from being a backbench MP to living in Stornoway, basically being this guy.
0: All right. Uh, uh, Chantel, you got the last word. You got a minute there.
1: Well, for one, he doesn't look prime ministerial, if you were looking for the word of what he doesn't look like when he does that. Um, but for two, I'm in your school. He, he also doesn't look in control. He, he looks like he can't do this properly. Uh, and the lesson one in broadcasting, as you know well, is that if you look comfortable in what you're doing, people are going to feel comfortable watching you do it. But if you look tense, uncomfortable, defensive, people are going to feel that discomfort. They're going to be uncomfortable with you. And I think, by and large, he leaves people who are not his partisan and his fans feeling uncomfortable and doubtful about him.
0: Well, it, it continues to set the stage for what's going to be an epic battle, on, uh, unlike anything we've seen. If it's these two guys in the, you know, in the election campaign, plus the other uh, leaders, of course, um, it, it is going to be something unlike anything we've seen in, a, in, in many a year. Um, and, uh, and the stage like, continues to be set. It seems like every week there's, there's yet another uh, uh, platform put on that stage uh, for, uh, for the leaders to go at each other on. Uh, okay, we're going to leave it at that for this week. We didn't get anywhere near the other issues we were going to talk about. I guess an hour isn't long enough. <laughs> we'll just have to go we'll for get longer. Carried away. It's that new relaxed Chantelle Bear look, and I got to say, you do look relaxed. So good for you that you had a bit of a break. Uh, but we're glad you're back. I know everybody else is glad you're back as well. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Chantelle. We'll talk to you both um, again, obviously, in seven days. Meanwhile, the bridge returns after a nice weekend off. We all hope you enjoy yours. We'll talk to you again on Monday.